for me, advocacy is using my voice to promote the idea of protecting public land, to promote and spread and share and prioritize the idea of stewardship and sustainability. And I like to call it community ethics, which I think is really just a fancy way of saying, be a good person. That was Katie Bouet, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 179. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest and to dig into our conversation about how to be a good advocate for public lands and for sustainability, while also advocating for and taking good care of yourself. But before we get to that, I would love to say a big thank you to the 400 plus people in our Patreon community. Those folks make contributions of $1 or more per episode, and that is literally what makes this entire show possible. This is a 100% listener-supported show. There's no ads, no sponsors, nothing like that, which means that these conversations are financially supported by awesome, regular people just like you. You can join us and learn more about all the fun bonuses that you get as a community member over at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your financial support is what will allow me to keep making three new episodes per month, and it pays everyone involved in creating the show. That includes me, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. Now that our community has met the funding goal that makes it possible for me to pay each and every guest, it means that all the folks whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for the time they spend talking with and teaching us. And here at Real Talk Radio, higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Our current funding goal, which I'm hoping to meet before the end of the year, will allow me to have full transcripts made of all future podcast episodes. It's an important step in making the show more inclusive, as having written transcripts means that these conversations can be enjoyed by folks regardless of whether or not they can consume audio content. So to learn more about that funding goal and to join the community to help us reach it, just head on over to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. I would love to have you there. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Katie Bouet. Katie is a Cuban-American outdoor advocate, freelance writer, and social media expert, public speaker, and adventurer. Katie's love of being outside and sharing wild spaces is the focus of her work in the outdoor recreation industry. She sees opportunity for empowerment, empathy, and action in every single outdoors person, and she wants to help the outdoor community do good, from public lands politics and sustainability to better access and inclusion in our parks and in the media. In this episode, Katie tells the story of how she got started in her work as an outdoor advocate, going into detail about her initial fake-it-till-you-make-it approach and all the twists and turns that led her to be on the verge of launching her very own powerful advocacy initiative later this year. We talk about everything from burnout to what advocacy even means to some suggested beginner steps to get involved in the protection of public lands. And of course, I also ask Katie, who is the ultimate desert lover, to teach us more about how to properly poop in desert environments. So yeah, I definitely learned some stuff about that. It was such a good and honest conversation. And on the other side of it, I'm honestly feeling more hopeful, which I guess I didn't really expect, and more empowered to get into this arena of outdoor advocacy myself. I hope that you enjoy it just as much. 
So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. Awesome. We are good to go. Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so stoked to talk today. I have to ask you, you were telling me before we started recording, you were describing where you're sitting right now. And I'm going to have to ask you to repeat that because it's fantastic. Tell everyone, <laughs> what is your surroundings right now? <laughs> so I live in an ultra modern, uh, very sustainably built home. And along with that comes a, a minimalist vibe. So we don't have a lot of stuff on our walls. So it's often pretty echoey in here. So when I record podcasts, I create uh, an adult professional version of uh, a sheet fort. So I'm sitting under a canopy of sheets and blankets and pillows and yoga mats and pillows. Um, and it's just, it's pretty comical. And I look like a little kid right now, but we are professionals here. <laughs> hey, I mean, the end result, the sound quality, it sounds really good and not echoey at all. So your pillow fort is very successful. There we go. I know I always love sort of the behind the scenes of what people do to make stuff work. I recently this year moved into a teeny Ford Transit Connect van and I hosted a Google Hangout for my Patreon community like from the back of the van for the first time. And it was just like the funniest, like I'm all squished in, you know, like I have my laptop propped on the bed. I'm kind of sitting on this tiny little bench. It works if I don't move too much in either direction. And like, yeah, the behind the scenes of things is sometimes pretty funny. I think the behind the scenes of content creation is one of the greatest unsung heroes of what we do as entrepreneurs. Um, I think we're always kind of making and shifting and running on the fly. And it, it often looks like a weird adult pillow fort, but then we produce these beautiful stories and these beautiful pieces of content that you would have no idea that behind it all was a, a weird pillow fort. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I find myself increasingly more curious about mundane honesty from people, like sort of the day-to-day, -day, how do you make that work? How do you make that happen? You know, and that definitely goes with content creation too. I'm always just interested in like, what did it take to make this happen? Yeah, and in, in this age of Instagram perfection and, and curated feeds and curated aesthetics, I think we're really swinging the pendulum back towards that raw, gritty, here's how it really um, works, here's here's how this is really created. And I think people love that. It's more relatable. It's, it's more connectable. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm always just, like, I'm interested in the how, the how of anything, right? How someone affords something, how they make time for it, like what they're sacrificing. You know, hey, I'm choosing to do this, so that means I can't have this other thing. And there's no right or wrong way to do that. But I always find it really comforting to know how people are making those decisions. Totally. So you mentioned Instagram briefly. I know one of the things um, that you've been doing this year is experimenting with social media free Sundays. Will you talk about that? Yes, I can wax poetic about social media free Sundays all day long. So I recently went through a big period of burnout. Um, I actually quit my job that I had been working on for the last about five years because I just felt so burned out on the political scene and the advocacy scene and just the the false urgency of emails. And in part of that, restoring the balance in my life, um, I hired an assistant and my assistant suggested to me that I really needed to spend some time establishing better boundaries with my phone and the digital space. And she knew of someone who picked a day of the week where they just checked out, they unplugged, they disconnected. And so I started practicing what I call social media free Sundays or no social Sundays. And it has truly 
changed my relationship with my phone, my ability to be present. It's really helped me establish boundaries in in ways that go so much farther than just Sundays disconnecting. You know, it, it this is practice that I do on Sundays and it's an imperfect practice. I still find myself picking up my phone at least once every Sunday and wondering why suddenly the Instagram app is open and like, how did that happen? Um, but now I'm more mindful every day of the week about like, do I need this phone in my hand? Do I need to be connected right now? Am I mindlessly scrolling right now or am I doing something with intent? And I can't suggest it enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have also been experimenting with it this year. I would say with like mild success in that I almost like keep forgetting that it's a thing that I'm doing. I experimented with Sundays. I experimented with full weekends, right? Like logging off Friday sort of evening and coming back Monday morning. And every single time I actually did it, it was awesome. And I just have to remind myself that like anything else, it's like a habit you have to keep recommitting to if you're finding that it benefits you. Totally. That's why I like to call it a practice too, instead of a rule that I have, because if I tried to have a, a hard and fast rule that I was never going to touch my phone on Sundays, I would be just setting myself up for failure. Um, you know, I'm in this habit of constantly having my phone in my hand. So to expect myself to go cold turkey is unreasonable, but setting myself up with some grace and room to improve and room to make mistakes makes it an inviting practice. It's not a, a punishment. It's it's a practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have any fears or concerns going into starting the practice? I actually really did. So I work mostly in the outdoor space and and a lot of the content that I create is around adventures and going outside. And a lot of the time that I spend outside is on the weekends. And so I had this moment of like, can I go on a hike and not Instagram it? Hmm. Am I Am I like shooting myself in the foot with my own business here? Like, am I is this going to harm my business if I'm not capturing these outdoor adventures that I'm having? And it turns out people really don't miss it. You can go for a hike without your Instagram app open and it's actually way more enjoyable. Yeah. I think some of my concern was, oh, I'm going to miss something that's important or, you know, I'm not going to get back to someone quick enough. And I just like have to keep checking myself on, like, I'm just not that important. People can wait, actually. Like if anyone needs life-saving information for me in their DMs, like they're asking the wrong person in general. (laughs) So totally. That that reminds me of the best piece of advice I ever got um, relating to kind of advocacy or really any work that you do is that it's not about you. It's, it's not about you. We always make things about ourselves and we put ourselves in such high importance, but it's not about us. You know, no one needs to reach you on a Sunday. And if they really do, they'll find a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the people who might really need to reach me on a Sunday probably have my actual phone number. Exactly. Yeah. So going back to what we were talking about, about kind of that, the how, what does the how look like for you? Like, do you delete, at, you know, social apps from your phone and then reinstall them? Like, what does it look like to enforce that boundary? So I would love to delete the app every weekend. Um, And I I initially thought about that, but I manage four to five different Instagram accounts at any given time. And some of them have content saved in draft. And when you delete the app, it deletes all of that. Um, And I'm really terrible at remembering passwords. So to delete it just added a whole new layer of anxiety to the practice for me. And the whole point of the practice is to eliminate anxiety. So For me, it's really just putting my phone in another room. It's just putting the phone away. It's being mindful. Um, Though I would love to one day have 
a separate work phone and just turn that phone off for the whole day. That yeah, would be the dream. Yeah, that's, th- that's such a good point. I, I really like what you said about if the point of the practice is to reduce anxiety and to feel better and for it to support you to sort of not then weaponize the practice against yourself by having sort of like expectations and rigidity that don't work. I think it's like, I mean, I can relate to that, not just with social media, but with other things that I set out to do them because they're supposed to be supportive for me and they're supposed to support my well-being. And then I can very quickly turn it into something that feels, you know, not supportive. Yeah. And I think that's something that has become a cultural practice for us. We, we like to punish ourselves a lot and like add more anxiety onto the idea of lessening our anxiety. And in a world that's filled with so much anxiety right now, we really don't need to put any more pressure on our plates. Yeah, I completely agree. My sort of behind the scenes, how with, um, sort of limiting these types of things where I'm at right now is I have my email and like social apps and stuff. I mean, it's mostly just Instagram in a separate folder, right? Like they're all together in one folder on my iPhone that I have titled Be Mindful, which we'll see if that actually works. And during like the hours during the day, because I'm also trying to limit not having it be the first thing I do in the morning and like the last thing that I do in the evening, which to me is is almost more impact, impactful than taking, you know, like a full day off. But, you know, at the end, at the end of the time, let's say it's like 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. when I'm like, okay, I'm done with these things for the day. Then I take that whole folder and I move it like three like to the other, not the main home screen, right? Like you can put it on a different screen. And so far that's been working. If it's not just like front and center, it's the mindful like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm physically moving it somewhere else. And in the morning I can move it back and we'll see how that works. It it sounds like so silly saying this out loud, like that I have to go through these, like take these steps, but you know, these apps remain to be addictive for a reason and I love it and get good stuff from it as long as I limit it. You know, I think that's like, welcome to 2019. It's, (laughs) I think we're, we're all a little, shameful sometimes about that but that's that's the reality for all of us I was just looking at my my phone because I do the same thing I have all my social apps in a separate folder and it's on the second screen of my homepage. so it's it's like that one act of having to swipe and having to tap just adds these extra barriers to give you an an extra nanosecond to think do I really need to be opening this right now and the answer is usually no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The I guess I'll add like one more layer of specific detail to this just for sort of how funny this practice has become for me. Once I put it back on my main home screen, you know, at like 9 a.m. or whatever it is on a weekday that I'm going to, you know, okay, I'm using these apps again. I will put that folder in a different place on the screen each time because I find like even breaking myself out of the habit of it's always in the bottom left corner, right? Like it just, like you said, sort of stops that automatic. Like I just go there. I just click there. If I have to look for it, you know, like, oh, where is this today? Even that kind of moment helps me. Yes. I, when I first moved all my social apps into their own folder, I moved my Strava app, which is an app that you use to track your runs. Or if you go on a hike, it, it creates like little digital maps and tracks um, how far you go and how fast you go. And so I moved that to where Instagram used to be. So now for a period of time, they're like a solid month, I would open the Strava app you know, a dozen times a day thinking it was Instagram just because it was out of habit. <laughs> so it's like this extra layer of like reminding myself, you know, instead of opening up Instagram, maybe you should go move your body instead. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. That's so good. 
Yeah. And, and another thing that I do that may be a helpful practice for um, listeners or for anyone who's interested in implementing some sort of boundaries with your phone in the digital space is that my phone is not allowed in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. I do not sleep with my phone in my room. It stays across the hall in my office and I do not allow it near my safe, special resting place. Yeah. I think for me, one of the like most important things of, and obviously we're talking about it through the lens of social media, but it could be, you know, any habit that we want to develop or, or break, you know, for the sake of our well-being has been to really test my own assumptions or fears. Like we were talking about, oh, the fear that I'm going to miss something or the fear that, you know, whatever people are concerned about, just to experiment with it and see like, is that actually true? Like, okay, I, you know, two different weekends I did this and nothing terrible happened. So maybe it's going to be okay. And just to give myself permission to like prove my assumptions wrong, if that makes sense. Yeah. And slightly in, in contradiction to that, but also supporting it ultimately part of what helped me prepare, I think for this idea of disconnecting on Sundays is that I am very often off grid for a few days. Um, I like to spend a lot of time in the desert adventuring and or going on, you know, canyon hikes. And those inherently are places where you're just out of service for a few days. And what I found that keeps happening is that I would leave service for two or three days and come back and some massive tragedy or huge news piece or political dumpster fire had ignited while I was gone. And the first few times it happened, I was like, oh my God, I can never turn off again. This thing happened and it's so big and I missed it. But then over time, I realized that I I missed it maybe, but I was just missing the social media phenomenon about it. These are big events that I I wasn't actually tied to to begin with. You know, some whistleblower event happens um, in the White House, and I can afford to miss that for a day. The dumpster fire will still be ablaze when you get back. Yeah, that's such a good reminder that the the issue that maybe you want to engage with or do advocacy around like that will still be there. And there's, I would say, even an argument for missing the heightened anxiety of the initial social media storm, potentially. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, there are things that are so important and that deserve uh, coverage and, and respect and and sadness even. But those things all will still be there. They linger. And I think when we skip that social media explosion, we're ultimately doing ourselves a favor. You know, I kind of like reduce it to if if we were back in a time when we were just getting our news through the newspaper, if you get it a day or two after it actually happens, you're still getting that information. You can still participate. And in this world that we live in now, with these huge, huge issues and these huge crises that we're dealing with, these are going to be along around for a long time. So we have a lot of time to dive in and and take action and to do something about it. You know, these aren't short-term problems that we're trying to solve here. These are long games. So we have plenty of time to get our heads on right and to dive into these things. And further, I think when you're giving yourself this space away from the digital space, or for me, it's space spent time spent outside, you're better preparing yourself and your soul and your mind and your body to be able to do good work in these spaces. If you're just constantly tuned in to the dumpster fires that are popping up all the time, we are constantly in this era of 
bad, bad, bad. This is happening. Go, go, go. If you never give yourself a break, you're just going to run yourself down and you won't be able to show up to these things with your true full potential and strength. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you love to spend time in the desert. And I'm going to make kind of a, a hard left turn because one of the most like personally interesting small things that I learned on your Instagram this year was when you were talking about protocols for pooping in the desert. Will you talk about that? (laughs) I was really hoping we would talk about pooping at some point. Here we are. 15 minutes in, we're good. (laughs) I love talking about pooping in the desert. Um, what specifically do you want to dive into here? Because there, there's a there's a whole lot we could talk about with pooping in the desert. Well, so first of all, once I started getting into long distance hiking, I was completely new to it. Did not grow up outdoorsy. You know, never ever ever went camping or hiking or any of that really until I was an adult. And so all of the best practices for how to exist, you know, and like live and spend nights in the wilderness were all really new for me. Right. So learning leave no trace principles. Learning. How do you poop outside? Like these were things that I didn't know like at all from the beginning. And then even after I did start to learn that and practice those things on my hikes, I had never learned or thought about different practices in different like climates or environments really until you started talking about that. So maybe I guess for folks who don't know, kind of a primer on how to poop in the wilderness and then like talking specifically about like what's different in the desert, just because I found it so interesting to think about that. All right, let me put my desert nerd glasses on here. Um, So, and I want to preface this by saying I was very much in the same position. You know, my origin story coming into the outdoor space and becoming an outdoor advocate and um, understanding, you know, the ways of the desert. I'm from Miami. So this was all new to me too. You know, I definitely came into the desert and uh, took some erroneous poo-poos and learned over time that, you know, the desert is an extremely precious and delicate and sensitive and unique ecosystem. It's so dry and arid. And there's this thing called cryptobiotic soil out there that we can also go down a rabbit hole on. But it's a it's a unique place that doesn't break down your poop quite like, um, you know, a lush forest would. So in a lush forest, you have all this bacteria and fungi that's living in the dirt and that can naturally break down your poop. But in the desert, it kind of just turns into a cow patty um, and it stays there for forever. And especially now as we're getting into this time where so many people are getting outside and using outdoor spaces, especially dispersed outdoor spaces where there aren't restroom facilities, we're getting this influx of poop. And so when you poop in the desert, you have to take it out with you, um, which was news to me. I, you know, in the spirit of we're all learning here, I definitely dug many a poo into the desert unknowingly. Um, But so when you poop in the desert, you need to pack it out. And the way that I do that is with um, the same doggy bags that I use for my pup spaghetti. So, I mean, if I can pick up her poop with my hand, why not my own? So that's that's been a a new practice for me is picking up my own poop, which really, if we're gonna if we're I mean we're already talking about poop, so we've opened up that can of worms. It's actually brought me closer to myself. I kind of love this act of like 
picking up my own poop because I really understand where my health is at. Like if my stress levels have been higher, if I need to eat more fiber, you learn a lot about yourself and the world around you when you poop in the desert. That's, I don't know what I thought you were going to say, but that's incredible. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the answer is like probably that I could Google this, but you know, just since we're already talking about it, how do folks, like if you're going out into the wilderness, right? Like find out what are sort of the best, what should I do with my poop practices based on where you're going? So that is actually the basis of the big project that I'm working on right now and the initiative that I'm trying to launch. All this information is out there on the internet. Um, Leave No Trace is a great organization and a place to start, but there are so many resources scattered throughout the internet and they are admittedly sometimes kind of buried in the weeds and a little bit difficult to dig up and conflicting answers. So what I'm working on right now is something called the Outdoor Advocacy Project. And I'm hoping to take all of these resources that already exist from all these fantastic nonprofit organizations and environmental groups and conservation orgs and put it into one easy place so that you could go on one single website that you know whatever question you have about the outdoors from can I poop in the desert to how do I get involved with a climate strike? You can get that answer in one space because right now that doesn't really exist. And it's something that is so incredibly needed as the outdoor community grows. You know, more people are getting outside than ever before. More people are visiting our national parks than ever before. Um, the Bureau of Economic Analysis just released numbers measuring the impact of the outdoor industry for the very first time as part of the U.S. economy. And we're 2.2% of the GDP. That's absolutely enormous. So along with that growth and this beautiful blossoming of our community comes this need to provide education and to provide these answers, provide resources so that people can get empowered to poop properly in the desert. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm going to I don't know if there's a way to like link to specific Instagram stories, maybe not, but in the show notes, um, I can direct people to, I know you have the desert pooping thing saved as a highlight on your <laughs> Instagram. So yes, it's a highlight called will the poos. Oh my God. Of course it is. It's so good. Um, <laughs> so tell me the story of how outdoor advocacy became your career. Did you grow up loving the outdoors? Was this like a from childhood thing? What did that look like? As I said, I grew up in Miami, Florida. So not quite the typical mountainous outdoorsy scene that many people picture when they think of, you know, outdoorsmen. Um, but in a different way, I was always brought up outside. I actually went to hear um, Dr. Jane Goodall speak last night, which was like one of the most incredible experiences of my life. But she was re- retelling the story of one of her first memories that she has of interacting with the outdoor and natural world was bringing a handful of dirt and earthworms into her bed and how her mother encouraged her to do that, even though it was like making a huge mess. And most moms would be like, are you kidding me right now? Like, what is this dirt pile in your bed? But her mom encouraged her. And and she said how that led her down the path to where she is now. And I just started like sobbing in the audience because I remembered one of my first memories that I have as a young girl interacting with the outdoors was my mom would take earthworms and she would tie them around my fingers like like little rings. Um, and I would just hang out with earthworms and, and I was always digging my hands into the earth and always playing outside and climbing on trees. And my family always took us on 
trips to national parks. So at the beginning of my time in the outdoor industry, I, I had this narrative in my head that I wasn't very outdoorsy as a young kid, but that is completely false. It's just this narrative that we haven't told as often in the outdoor space. Um, I was super outdoorsy and for me, it really all came to a head while I was in college um, at Florida State University. And I joined the FSU climbing club at Tallahassee Rock Gym and got really involved with the rock gym there, which brought me into my identity as an outdoorsy person, as an adult, um, climbing inside of the gym. As, as you may imagine, there's no climbing in the state of Florida to be had. So we drove every weekend up to Chattanooga and to Atlanta and Alabama to go climb. And there's a different level of gratitude and respect that you have for outdoor spaces when the way to get to them involves an eight hour drive through the night in between classes. And so I really grew to love and appreciate these places. And through that love that I cultivated, I got involved with an event that the Rock Gym hosts called Save the South. Um, it's a benefit fundraiser for our local climbing advocacy group called the Southeastern Climbers Coalition. And I volunteered to organize basically all the community and social aspects of the event. So I rallied all the sponsors and I got local businesses to chip in and give us stuff for, you know, swag for giveaways. I did all the social media and communications around it. And I never realized until recently that that was the beginning of everything for me. That That's everything that I'm doing now is cultivating community and doing it in a way that brings people and place together to do good. And man, that really just changed my life. And I had no idea at the time that that was sending me down this path. I was studying creative writing. I wanted to be a travel journalist. I thought that that's where I was going to go. But it turns out that this little event we hosted at our rock gym was the true catalyst for my career. And so I spent, after college, I bought a big yellow sprinter van. I built out on the inside. And for those of you who are familiar with kind of the van life image these days, you're probably picturing one of those really beautiful sprinters with like the leather interiors and the marble countertops. And they're all very beautiful. I want you to table that visual and work with me here. Picture a rusty yellow sprinter van that is barely running. And on the inside, I just gutted it. I had no insulation in there. I went to Ikea and Home Depot and just scoured the clearance and as is section for a few months and built the inside of my van with less than $500. So we had a solid bed platform, but the kitchen was literally, I found, um, kind of one of those bathroom cabinets, the like particle board bathroom cabinets that they sell at Home Depot. And I haphazardly bolted that to the floor of the van and thought it was good. And a few months later down in Moab, when I went there for the first time, we were driving down a particularly rocky dirt road and the entire kitchen came unhinged. <laughs> so for about six months, I lived with a an unhinged kitchen swinging around in the back of my van. So every time we would take a tight turn, I would have to crawl in the back and brace myself between 
the cabinet and the door and just hold it upright as we drove. <laughs> so it was not uh, the kind of glamorized view of van life that we have now, but that van is what took me around to all the public lands and national parks and monuments and uh, Bureau of Land Management land and national forest and opened my eyes to what's out there in these incredible places and because I was essentially living on them, you know, for a year I paid my rent in national park entry fees and campground fees. And I learned how special these places are and how in need of protection they are. You know, these places don't have a voice. And I realized that what I love to do is tell stories and I'm really good with words. So I wanted to use the skills that I had to serve these places that had given me so much and couldn't speak for themselves. Yeah. I've heard you say that you took a real fake it till you make it approach at the beginning. What did that look like? Yes. Yeah, so after the year in the van, um, I went back to Florida very briefly, sold the van. My partner, who I had been traveling with at the time, um, dumped me very abruptly. And so I was in this chaotic, broken phase of my life. I I knew I couldn't be in Florida anymore. After you see the big mountains and the contrast of the desert, I was like, there's no way I can stay in Florida. So I moved out to Denver, Colorado. And as you may imagine, after living for a year on the road, I was very broke. And in desperation, I started looking for social media related jobs and found a part-time job with the Outdoor Industry Association, which is the trade association that represents the interests of business um, and brands and organizations within the outdoor space. And I interviewed with them and got the job. And on my, you know, first week on the job, I went to my boss and I said, I just want you to know that this isn't going to be a 10 hours a week job. I'm going to make this a full-time job and I'm going to be here for a long time. And, you know, really faking it till you make it. Cause I, I had no background in social media, you know, I just used it a lot and, and I had a natural skill for social media and communications and I had no true experience in the outdoor industry. You know, I, I organized this fundraiser at a rock gym, but who was I? I just kind of showed up fresh out of a van, probably still smelling pretty stinky and decided that this was what I wanted to do. And so I was going to do it. And through my work at OIA, I was introduced to their government affairs team um, and they had two people at the time full-time in D.C. lobbying on the Hill, working directly with lawmakers on important outdoor issues. And I connected with that and I was like, whatever's going on there, I want to be a part of that. So never mind not having any social media experience. I definitely didn't have any political experience or policy know-how or understanding of what legislation uh, processes are like aside from you know, like that schoolhouse rock video of how a bill is born. It's <laughs> <laughs> so <know>? relatable. <laughs> so, but I just knew that this is what I wanted to do. And it was, it was so important. And, and so I just, I just dove in. I just, I went for it. I started weaseling my way into any event that was going on through the organization. Um, you know, I convinced them, Hey guys, like, there's this annual lobbying event that they do where they fly 50 or so executives and 
powerful people in the industry out to D.C. and train them on important outdoor issues that we're currently lobbying on and send people out on the Hill to meet with lawmakers and congressmen and uh, folks who are running the BLM and the Forest Service and the Park Service. And I said, we definitely need social media coverage of that. So you should probably send me on this trip and just kept weaseling myself into those situations however I could and just speaking with confidence. I think that's such a key to this idea of faking it till you make it. If you want to do something, do it with confidence because nobody knows that you have no idea what you're doing unless you clue them in on it. If you show up with confidence and ambition and determination, turns out people roll with that. And eventually it was no longer faking it. It was really just making it. And I think at this point now, it's just, it's just making it. And, and what it is, you know, I think that's a lifelong process of figuring that out. But as long as you keep making and creating and going for things, you could do whatever you dream of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I like the reminder that, you know, everybody starts somewhere, right? Like everyone's a beginner at something at some point or a beginner at everything at some point. And that that's totally fine, right? Like you can learn new skills and you can learn new information and you can put yourself in unfamiliar situations and it might feel uncomfortable or terrifying or a very imposter syndrome but also you can do that. Absolutely. I'm very much in feeling all of those things you just described with my current role founding this project called the Outdoor Advocacy Project. You know, I've worked as a social media manager, as a consultant, as a freelance writer, as a a manager, but I've never founded an entire business. And so now I'm figuring out how to create a benefit corporation. I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing, but you figure it out as you go along because you know that the things that you're so passionate about are important. So you give whatever you have to give to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, in my own life, have been sort of really thinking about this idea that you can learn new skills, which as I say, that sounds silly, because of course, you can learn new skills. But I went to the adventurous women's escape retreat thing here in Bend recently. And I took a bunch of the wilderness first aid classes, which is something that I had you know, been wanting to learn more about for you know, over three years and just kept not prioritizing it and kept not prioritizing it and feeling overwhelmed by it. And I remember in the first class, I learned how to properly tape an ankle, right? Like a sprained ankle, which might sound like a small thing, but it was this moment of, you know, I walked into the class and did not know how to do that thing. And I walked out of the class and then knew definitively how to do that and other things. And it was a good reflection point for me of anything that I feel overwhelmed about or anything that I'm new at, somebody knows how to do it. I can learn from someone, like these skills are available and I can learn new things. And it was, I don't know, I've been feeling really encouraged reflecting on that over the last week of even things that are bigger and more daunting. You know, we can learn, we start somewhere, we can just learn. Absolutely. We are lifelong learners. And I think something that's really good for the soul too is to practice being a beginner. Um, I've in kind of this this last season, um, so I left my job with OIA in, in the spring to pursue kind of my passion and the work that I really wanted to do. And part of that was like giving myself, I called it a mini sabbatical, which absolutely did not work out because, you know, when you're living in an abundance mindset, things are constantly coming to you. And so you, there was no way I could just like turn off completely. But one of the things that I picked up this summer 
is painting. And I cannot adequately describe to you how mediocre my art is. It's terrible. (laughs) It's absolutely horrendous. But it's so fulfilling to be so bad at it because there are no expectations. It's not like the rest of my work where I'm trying so hard to do a good job and to perform for others and to be delivering really quality, important work. No, I'm just sitting there with my paintbrush hoping for the best and making a mess. And in a weird way, that that practice of terrible watercolor painting has made me better at all the other work that I do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that that idea of being a beginner and remembering you can always try something new, you can always do something new, you can always be learning is a really healthy practice for us. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So you mentioned uh, that you left your job in the spring. I would love to hear a little bit more about what your decision-making process was around that because I think sometimes when we make big decisions, it's easy to say like, oh, then I just like, sold all my stuff or I, you know, changed jobs or I did that, right? And there's a lot, kind of what we were talking about at the, about at the beginning of that how of something. Was this something you thought about for a long time? Was it a, I have to have X amount of money saved up? Like what did the decision-making process look like for you in deciding to leave a job and start your own project? That idea of, yeah, this this beautiful picture of like, I'm, I'm going to quit my job and sell everything and go off into the woods. That is definitely not how it went down. Um, I actually quit my job once before. And um, so I was living in Denver, commuting to Boulder every single day, working in a cubicle. And it just really, it wasn't, it wasn't the way that my body and my creativity and my brain operate. I was miserable and knew that I needed to get out of there, but loved my work so much. So the first phase of me quitting was actually me pitching to my bosses and the executives to let me take my job on the road. And so I created this beautiful pitch deck that outlined all of the incredible analytics of the work that I had done and how I'd grown our community over the past year. And then after I was done tooting my own horn and selling my, you know, myself as a, a valuable asset to the organization, I ended it with... I need to leave and I'm leaving, but I would love to take my work with me. So I pitched this idea of a road show because the organization is made up of members. So everyone from the North Face to um, REI to climbing brands to um, like media agencies are all members of the organization. So I said, why don't you let me head out on the road to go connect with our members and tell their stories and tell this broader story of the outdoor industry. Because we were located in Boulder, so we were kind of in this bubble. And so I pitched them to let me hit the road. I convinced a um, retrofitted van company to lend me a vehicle for this tour. And I spent a summer traveling solo around the West to, I think it was uh, 13 states and hosted five sustainability happy hours across the West and got to tell these stories of the outdoor industry. And so I was able to kind of keep my job, but kind of leave it. And then at the end of that tour, I had built all these connections in the industry and had really kind of started to find my passion for community advocacy. So 
I quit my job and left for um, almost almost a year, I think it was, and hired a replacement. And she's she was wonderful, um, but she wasn't quite me. And, and I had really built the social media program from the ground up. So it was my baby. It was my voice. People were so deeply connected with me as the the wizard behind the curtain. And so they actually ended up coming back to me and asking me to take my job back. And I was able to negotiate at that point. Okay, well, I'm, I'm already gone. I'm living in Salt Lake City. I'm definitely not coming back to Colorado. Um, I remember the, the burden that this job kind of was for me. So I was able to negotiate coming back on my own terms. So, you know, making sure that my schedule was flexible. I was able to negotiate much higher pay. I was able to return to the job on my own terms. And that worked for a while. But what I really ended up truly deeply understanding in that second phase of taking my job back was that I was working for an organization that exists to serve businesses and industry and um, kind of more economic values, which is fantastic. So uh, that organization needs to exist. But what I've been called to do is serve people and place. And I spent so much of my time with that organization trying to push them to align better with what I was trying to do and finally realize that that's not their job, but it could be my job. Mm -hmm. And I just needed to really commit to what I believe needed to be put out into the world. And I just needed to step up and make it happen instead of trying to rely on someone else to step up and make it happen for me. So I gave my notice and I left on great terms. Um, you know, I still love the work that they're doing and, and I hope to partner with them with my new project, but I have such a clear vision for what it is that the universe has called me to do. And I'm wasting my time if I'm doing anything other than pursuing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate your honesty in telling more of the whole story because yeah like you said it can be a very and then I quit my job la 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 right and the fact that I guess like big things can happen overnight but I think that's rarely the case and even just hearing sort of the different phases of how you negotiated for yourself what concessions you made and didn't make like that's I think that's really relatable to folks in a lot of different industries and a lot of different careers that you know it takes time and it takes iterating and you don't have to know necessarily right now you know what the forever thing is. It's kind of just like one better fit step at a time. Exactly. And especially in terms of the financial stability, I think that you really have to be pragmatic with yourself in making those decisions. Um, I think the the glorious idea of quitting your job and having this big nest egg that'll support you as you pursue your dreams is a beautiful dream that is not a reality for most of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I very quickly had to take on some new clients to support me in the meantime. I had to, you know, really start hustling on creative freelance writing gigs and figuring out how and where I could make money to support this dream. Because especially as someone with the passion for advocacy work, you know, you're not going to get rich on outdoor advocacy. That's, that's just not, that's not, a a feasible realm of reality. I'm not going to become 
super wealthy by talking about pooping in the desert all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think that, yeah, it's really important to have that realistic outlook on it. And I think that having that realistic outlook on it makes you better prepared to deal with it. Like it's not a big deal that I had to cut back on my expenses, that I had to be smarter with what I'm spending, that I had to look for work harder than I used to before. Um, That's part of what I'm committing to and what I'm sacrificing in order to pursue my dreams. And that's such a small price to pay for the idea that I could have the gift and the privilege of pursuing what it is that fires me up most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This might seem like a really, really simple basic question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is advocacy work? That is a fantastic question. I'm working on a workshop right now, and um, I'm actually hosting it in Moab this coming weekend. Um, it's called the it's for the a podcast called Women on the Road, which I know you're familiar with, and they're hosting a a meetup. And so I'm I'm teaching a workshop on outdoor advocacy. And one of the first questions that I have that I want to pose to the group is, what is advocacy? What does that mean? And I believe let's see the. The technical definition is advocacy is public support for or recommendation of a particular cause or policy. So for me, advocacy is using my voice to promote the idea of protecting public land, to promote and spread and share and prioritize the idea of stewardship and sustainability and I like to call it community ethics, which I think is really just a fancy way of saying, be a good person. Yeah, I, I'd i love, if you're open to it, for you to break down a sort of getting involved in outdoor advocacy 101. Like, let's say someone listening is totally into this idea and cares about the things that you care about and wants to get involved, but feels really overwhelmed by where to start, what to actually do on a consistent basis when it comes to, right, like public lands politics or sustainability or any of the the things that you've mentioned so far. Because honestly, I feel that way myself too sometimes, and I know that I'm not alone in that. Do you have a recommended starting point for folks? I think getting started is the scariest or, you know, uh, most intimidating step because it's like that first step into this space. And there are so many resources out there um, that are ready to help you dive in. And part of what I want to do with the Outdoor Advocacy Project is create those pathways because you have to, first of all, meet people where they're at. You know, I can't expect to take you out into the desert for the very first time and that you're just going to magically know how and where to poop. But there are resources out there that are ready to help you dive in however you want to get involved And before you do that, you have to figure out how it is that you want to get involved. So I have this worksheet that I use at the workshops that I teach to guide people through that process. And the first thing that you do is look at yourself. So what are the issues that matter most to you? Are you a rock climber and you're really interested in, you know, working on climbing community issues? Are you someone who notices trash Every time you go walk your dog, like you just can't, you know, once you start looking at a piece of trash, like you just see it everywhere and it's the thing that bothers you the most. Or you are a maker and you're really interested in sustainability. Figure out 
what it is that gets you fired up. And then we can make a plan of action to figure out how to get you involved in that specific issue and in that space. So you figure out what issues matter to you and then figure out your strengths as a person. Um, so I get a lot of people that are like, well, I really want to give back and I want to get involved in advocacy, but I'm an accountant and I don't really know how any of that applies to the outdoor space. And to be honest, pretty much every outdoor nonprofit could really use some accounting support. <laughs> and people don't think of that as outdoor advocacy, but it is. There are so many different ways to give back and we all bring something different to the table. And so figuring out what you're interested in and how you can serve is the first step. And for me, I'm always on social media. So a great way for me to get educated and involved and stay informed is just making sure that I'm filling my feed with content and resources that are always taking me to the next level and providing me that information. So, um, and full disclosure, I help them with their social media, but I love Outdoor Alliance. They are a nonprofit coalition of 10 different major kind of human powered recreation groups. So everyone from the American Whitewater Association to um, the American Alpine Club all come together on public lands issues. And they do a lot of hard DC policy work, but they also do a really great job of presenting issues in a timely manner and breaking it down in a way that you can understand. And they always provide an action step at the end, which is part of why I decided to start supporting them and working with them. So um, sign up for their newsletter, follow Outdoor Alliance on social media and read their blog posts and fill your timeline and your feeds with organizations like this that, again, kind of align with the issues that matter most to you and just start learning. Um, I think we definitely always want to start doing, especially when we're so fired up about something. But one of the best things about advocacy and one of the most important actions you can take in advocacy is to listen. Listen and learn. And once you start listening, the whole world of advocacy will start opening up to you and you'll start seeing the opportunities and the issues and the topics and you'll find those pathways to start getting more deeply involved. Mm-hmm. For your own life and advocacy, I'm curious about sort of what that looks like on a day-to-day, particularly the balance between like your personal individual like actions that you sort of take quietly in, you know, in your own life. Like, you know, for example, I keep going to keep referencing Instagram because a lot of what I know about you, I know through Instagram, obviously, Um, you know, when you're going to the farmer's market and you'll say, here's my like, you know, sustainable, reusable, you know, things that I bring with me, right? Like in terms of that type of individual stuff versus advocating on like a larger scale. I mean, I guess, let me like put this in some context, and this might be like sort of a pessimistic question, but in honor of this being kind of real talk radio and all, I'm going to ask it anyway, um, but feel free to <laughs> respond and, and tell me that I shouldn't be so negative if that's the answer. I really, I remember, I think it was a couple of years ago when that report that came out that said that I think it was 100 companies have been the source of more than 70% of the world's like emissions, right? Since, I don't know, like the 80s or something. And I, I'm all for personal responsibility and reducing our own impact, I guess, but I often feel like those action steps either aren't enough to create real change or play, they're placing too much emphasis on individual change when what's needed is like this huge systemic change at the kind of corporate and governmental level and beyond. So 
I guess I'm interested for you sort of what balancing that looks like. Mm, What a great topic. (laughs) I've been doing a lot of introspection on this particularly, um, especially that idea of the responsibility of the individual versus the responsibility of those 100 corporations. Um, I recently learned that even if every single human on this planet took those actions, like not using straws or putting solar panels on our roof or, you know, whatever the individual steps we can take are, we would only reduce 10% of the global emissions. And that's not enough. And so that was a real slap in the face for me of how are we using our time and our energy and what are we advocating for? Um, And for me, part of this idea of individual action has always been a trick, a trick that I'm very happy to play on my audience and my community because we, we don't take these actions or, and I don't encourage these actions of, you know, using bamboo utensils or getting solar panels on your house. Or, um, for me, I cut my air travel down by over 50% over the last year because of my carbon footprint. And I'm not actually taking those actions because I think that not using plastic straws anymore is really going to save a sea turtle. I'm taking those actions and encouraging other people to take those actions because it shifts your mindset because it makes you start thinking about these systems that we exist in and the systems that we're upholding and participating in. And it gets us prepared and fired up and really angry to take the actual action that's needed, which is holding those companies accountable and demanding that change. So within the outdoor industry, part of what sparked this idea for me that I need to quit my job and focus on this community is that we're always quoting the statistic that the outdoor industry is an $887 billion industry, which is massive. That's a lot of power, but it's always the executives and the businesses and like the industry that are quoting that number. And what that number is measuring is consumer spending. So what that number is measuring is the power of the people So what I want to do is inspire us and empower us and activate us on taking that power back and using it to hold the true polluters and the true people who need to make the changes, which are the corporations, accountable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's A, incredibly well said, and then also just like comforting for me personally, because I can definitely get caught in the despair, nothing that I'm doing matters whole from time to time. I, I totally feel that too. And I have a lot of carbon emission guilt and I felt really uh, vindicated yesterday when Paul Hawken, who is, um, if you're not familiar with Paul Hawken, he wrote a book called Drawdown, which was a comprehensive project where he and scientists and students from around the world identified the top 100 ways to address climate change. And he said in his speech that you shouldn't feel bad about driving a car anymore because I get a lot of guilt. Sometimes I have this old 1993 Mitsubishi Delica that we take on road trips and I get pushback from people sometimes saying, how can you call yourself a climate advocate if you're out going on road trips? 
you're burning gas, you're contributing to emissions. And for a moment, they almost got me. But what Paul reminded me of is that that's not my problem. I would, of course, be driving an electric vehicle or a solar-powered vehicle or a freaking land sailboat down to the desert if that system existed for me to operate in. But it doesn't, and that's not my fault. What I can do is make sure that I am continuously and always advocating for better systems for me to be able to participate in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that just feels so much more hopeful and productive to me than a lot of the individual shaming that happens. Like I see it a lot around food choices too, right? Particularly folks in communities that don't have access to like certain things that maybe wealthier folks have access to and about like who is and isn't vegan. Like there can be a lot of shaming happening on an individual level that I think misses the point. Absolutely. And within all of this, one of the things that that I'm really hoping to spark um, within the outdoor community, but in a much broader sense in, in the world and in anyone who is interested in sustainability or the environment or the health of our planet and, and the health of humanity is this idea of just using your critical thinking skills mm-hmm. and understanding nuance. And all of these topics are so incredibly complicated and understanding that there are multiple perspectives and multiple lived experiences on any one of these given topics that all can exist and be valid at the same time. And that we're all on different pages. We're all in different situations, economic situations, geographical situations. We're all existing in these different worlds and experiences. And so we have to take that into context with all of these things. Um, for example, the the vegan conversation or, or the meat conversation. Um, I'm vegetarian for mostly environmental reasons. Um, you know, I think meat is absolutely delicious because it is, but I understand that agricultural practices, especially factory farming are horrific for our earth, mm-hmm. for water, for land use. But the thing is, is that vegetables can be pretty darn bad for the earth as well. Almond milk is extremely water intensive. You know, there's, there's, there's so many layers to it. And when we put our blinders on and and think that things are so black and white, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. So for meat, if I have a friend who's going out and wild harvesting a single elk that is going to feed their family for the rest of the year, that is a completely separate topic from the idea of telling people not to go to McDonald's and eat a burger. Those two types of meat are not even in the same universe mm-hmm. of their impact on the planet. And so I, I really want to spark people to start thinking about all those layers and understanding those nuances and understanding that the more we think and the more we consider and the more we take a critical eye to our own decisions, the better we can be. So for me, it's not quite as simple as go vegan. For me, it's I want to understand where my food is coming from. I want to understand the practices that go into 
how everything that touches my plate gets to my plate. And that, I think, is the way that we really shift culture and shift these systems and start being able to pick things apart and build better systems. Yeah, yeah. I think your reminder of how nuanced a lot of this stuff is is really important. And also what you said um, earlier on in the conversation just about listening and education, right? And that your lived experience is probably really different from someone else's lived experience and leaving space for that. And, you know, I think even what you were saying about paying attention to, like, how everything got to your plate. And I feel similarly with kind of shopping and clothing. And that's a process I'm working on right now is trying to build kind of a capsule wardrobe for myself. And, you know, where are these clothes made? And are folks getting paid living wages to do it, right? All of these questions. And then sort of even having to check myself of the ability to have the time and the energy to dig into that stuff. That's a privilege as well, right? And so keeping the eye on, like you said, trying to reshape the systems for everyone is, to me, seems like that's the only thing that has really landed for me in a big way. Mm. Mm -hmm. And if you have any great findings and tips uh, on your journey of examining your your apparel and your wardrobe and making it more sustainable. I am all ears because I'm also trying to look at that more critically now and it, it gets complicated. Yeah, it does it's get really complicated. complicated. Yeah, I, I recently, I mean, so I, I have very a very small wardrobe through basically not shopping for many years and, you know, kind of downsizing, downsizing, and, you know, my body's bigger than it used to be and just those kind of changes that are, okay, I have like three things that fit me. I should, I am, would like to have some more things and would like to do that kind of shopping with my eyes open. And I wound up, I posted this um at the time of this recording, it was earlier this week, just in my Instagram stories, basically asking people if they had tips or recommendations. And first of all, I got like well over 100 messages. So this is on a lot of folks' mind, like not just mine, not just yours. Either people giving really good tips that I'm excited to start going through and sharing, or people being like, I feel equally overwhelmed by this. And then the couple of reminders from people that are, don't forget the system's broken. You can't be a perfectionist. You know, you can do the best you can. So it was like an input of really good information. Yeah, and, and, and I think that comment there is a perfect example of like how many layers are in any given issue and how how many different perspectives there are and, and how many different options there are and things to look at and things to consider. And I think we're very privileged to have the time and the capacity to dive into those things because it's, you know, you could spend weeks doing nothing but examining your wardrobe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So both of us have talked a little bit about, you know, wanting to make more systems level change. And I know that's a big part of the work that you do. I'd love to kind of go one step deeper into the nitty gritty of, so what does that actually look like? Is that, you know, more like you were talking about like lobbying type stuff? Is this at a policy level? Like when you're saying, okay, I've chosen this issue to put my energy, time, resources, everything into to try to hopefully help make like larger scale systemic change. What does that process look like for you? Over the past few years, it's definitely been a lot of that um, direct political engagement. So building relationships with lawmakers, going to D.C. directly to speak with lawmakers. My favorite relationship that I have in D.C. right now is with um, Rep. John Curtis. He's a congressman for Utah, and he is a Republican through and through. We butt heads on a lot of issues, but we have built this beautiful relationship and we've been able to connect on a deep level that I think is is truly facilitating change and so there have been a number of issues there was a thing called the Emory County bill 
that because I had invested so much time into this relationship with him, he understood that I wasn't just some, you know, tree hugging environmentalist coming in, asking him all sorts of unreasonable in his eyes things that I was someone who really was trying to understand his perspective, but also help him understand my perspective. And so we were able to discuss some really key changes to this legislation that made a huge difference for the climbing community and for some um, specific protections in certain canyon areas. And seeing that level of change was like rocked me to my core. That that me, this random young 30-year-old woman can go busting into DC and have a direct conversation with a lawmaker that's going to affect a piece of legislation that is now signed into law that was huge. And when I thought about the voice that I could carry for the rest of my community next time I go down there, that's huge too. And I think something that a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, I really, that fake it till you make it showing up in DC idea, like I just kind of showed up one day and started lobbying. Anyone can go to DC and get involved with lobbying. But again, this idea of the privilege of time and energy, like that's not an option for everyone. So I want to create a platform where I can take those voices and uplift them and give power to them. So something that I'm really excited about with the Outdoor Advocacy Project is the idea of sign-on letters. Um, A lot of businesses and business organizations use this. So I wanna be able to look at a specific issue with a brand. Let's say there's a brand that uses a truly excessive amount of plastic packaging for their gear. I wanna be able to write a formal letter with a complaint outlining the problem, why it's problematic, and then providing suggested solutions and the measure of the impact that those solutions could have both on the environment and on a business's bottom line. Because most of the time, sustainable practices end up netting out to be a positive thing for your business anyways. And be able to get a sign-on letter where all these people in this community can add their voice to it And it becomes a collective tool that we can then deliver to this organization and hold them accountable and be able to say, hey, we asked you guys to fix this. Where's your answer? Because right now, what we do a lot of, especially on social media, are these ultimately kind of petty, in my opinion, um, individual call outs. Like we, you know, someone's like, oh, well, we got to really tackle that issue of the plastic packaging for whatever brand, let's all tweet them about that. And sometimes that's effective, but ultimately I think what people miss is that you're just tweeting at someone like me who's just trying to keep it together and manage someone's social media account. And the people who are running social media, bless our hearts, we are understaffed, under-resourced, underpaid, and that's not reaching the person who really needs to hear it. You're talking to someone in social media you need to be talking to an executive. You need to be talking to the people who are making the decisions about that supply chain. So I wanna be able to take everything that I've learned from my time in the industry so that I can take this message and deliver it exactly to who needs to hear it. Mm -hmm. Because that's more effective. If I could take all the time that we spend tweeting at each other or calling each other out on Instagram and take these messages in a more educational, impactful way and deliver them to exactly who needs to hear them. That's how we create change. And that's how we get more effective with our voices and our time and our precious energy. 
Yeah, I love that so much. I'm very excited about the Outdoor Advocacy Project. Will you talk a little bit about what the next steps are for that? The next steps are for that is that it needs to launch. Um, <laughs> I So I've been working on this for um, almost a year now, preparing it to launch. And the backbone of it, as I mentioned earlier, is this website where I want you to be able to type in whatever question you have about advocacy and get the information, the education, the tools you need to learn about it and then also steps to take action on it. And so building that database right now is probably the biggest undertaking of my life. Um, You know, I have hundreds of topics that need content behind them, hundreds of resources that need to be gathered. And so right now, my assistant and I and a team of truly incredible people who have volunteered their time and their talents to bring this to life because they believe in it so deeply. And we're just cranking away, getting this ready to launch. So I've identified some key topics and key issues that I want to have as the, you know, the beta launch for this platform so that we can present this platform, present the community, present the stoke that's behind this idea and go to um, Outdoor Retailer, which is the huge trade show and convening of the entire industry and be able to knock on the doors of every single brand that I know and ask them to support this because this project is going to require a lot of resources and a lot of manpower and creativity and that requires compensation and that's a huge priority for me with this project you know as a freelancer myself um, as someone who's kind of been hustling on creating content it's so important to me to make sure that people are compensated well um but at this point, it's it's just me and my ever-dwindling savings account trying to bring this to life. <laughs> so we're just trying to trying to make it happen and and debating on a Kickstarter as well. Um, I I don't love Kickstarters, but so many folks have reached out asking how they can contribute, and you know I really would like that that financial support to be able to pay people to do this work. Yeah. So going back and forth on that and. But right now we're just we're getting ready to launch. Um, my tentative date for everything to go live is sometime the first week of December, twenty nineteen. Yeah, scary even just saying that. No, that's that's <laughs> exciting, and you know I, I feel like it's funny. All of the reminders that you shared and gave me about other things throughout this conversation, I feel like could be flipped right back. Like it's okay to sort of be a beginner. It's not going to be perfect the first time, right? Like. All of that stuff, you know, for any new project, for sure. Um, so given that the the launch is, is coming up, but is still a little ways out, um, for folks like me who want more information and really, you know, want to know when that happens, what's the best way to find out? So Outdoor Advocacy Project exists across social media already. Um, you can find us on Instagram at Outdoor Advocacy. And on the bio there, there's a link in the bio that can take you to our email signup list. And if you want to kind of stay in the loop and be involved with the first iteration of this and really kind of be on part of like the ground launch team and community, um, I encourage you to, you know, sign up and put your email in there. Um, I'm very protective over email addresses. So you will only be getting the good stuff that you want to receive in your inbox and, if you have resources that you are like, man, I really want to give back to the outdoor advocacy community and contribute to this project, 
please reach out to me. Um, I am desperate right now for even things like folks to lend me their Instagram images to be able to repost as content um, and to use to support our, our tools and our resources that we're developing. You know, that's huge. If you are a passionate writer about any topic that can relate back to outdoor advocacy, whether you really want to talk about pooping in the desert or you're super fired up about um, the conservation work that's happening in your local community and want to build a page for people to get involved in the work that you're doing. Um, I would love to support what people are already doing and, and make it part of the project and get as many hands involved in this project as possible. That's the logo for the Outdoor Advocacy Project is a hand because this project isn't about me. You know, it, it never is about you, but it, it, this really isn't about me. This is about the community and I want this to be built by the community and I want the voices who are the backbone of all these resources and all this information to be the experts and to be the people who are closest to these topics. So if you're fired up, I'm fired up and would love to have you be part of it. Yeah, I love that. I'm curious how you personally choose which brands you're going to do partnerships with. That is a tough one. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's why I'm like, none of these questions have easy answers, right? But it's all <laughs> stuff, you know, especially in talking about like the the nuance, right? And like some brands and companies will be doing some things great and other things not so great. And from kind of like an either an influencer perspective or just like partnerships in general, like when you start to think about this, um, I'm just curious the real answer of like how you make those choices. Yeah. And I think, you know, if there were easy answers, it wouldn't make for a very good podcast. Um, (laughs) And so for me, the, I get pitches in my email um, inbox every single day from brands who want to collaborate or do sponsored content or partnerships together. And the first thing that I always respond back to is great. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Can you please send me over all your information that you have about your sustainability practices and your supply chain? And if they have an answer to that of any kind, that's a step forward for me. If they can't give me anything and they can't even tell me like that it's a priority for them and it's something that they're looking at in the future and want to work on, they're out the door for me. And I made a commitment to that standard Um, around the same time that I left my job and it was absolutely terrifying because it turns out a lot of the money and the big budgets are coming from brands and corporations who just don't give a hoot. And so I had to commit myself to truly taking a pay cut. Um, I stopped working with a lot of brands that I had previously had on my list, but if it's a brand who can demonstrate to me that they are taking a step forward then I'm willing to have a conversation. And mm-hmm. I'm always very direct and frank when I get on the phone with a brand and they're pitching me. I ask them, like, can you tell me more about what you guys are doing to take your sustainability to the next level? And an important thing to remember when we're looking at brands and especially businesses that have been around for a long time, they will be imperfect. I have yet to find a brand to partner with that truly checks every single box of a do good brand to ask a brand right now to be perfectly sustainable, have a totally clean supply chain 
and fair labor and fair wages and their packaging's perfect and you can recycle their products at the end of the product lifestyle life cycle that is just like if you are one of those brands please call me yeah <laughs> but <laughs> that's just not that's not realistic and you know again it's back to that idea of like we're we're operating in the systems that currently exist so if i can find a brand who is testing out their first line of apparel made with all recycled materials. That's great. I would love to partner with them. I want to encourage that because if I came to them and said, mm, that's like, all right, I guess that you're doing that, but your headquarters isn't using LED light bulbs and your average employee commutes like X amount of miles and mm, you have some plastic in your packaging that's not going to encourage that brand to take another step forward. That's just sending a message to them that what they're doing is not enough and doesn't matter. So, so why would they want to continue taking that step forward? What I'm really interested in is finding brands and organizations that are interested in taking the next step and forming a relationship with them that's transparent, of course. You know, I will always say, like, oh, I love this product, but, like, just got to say it, the packaging was a little much. Because when you form a relationship is when you can truly change minds and when you can encourage positive growth. You can't come swinging in. You know, if, if someone came up to you, you're eating dinner, and somebody comes up to you and starts screaming at you that you shouldn't be eating burgers because the only way to go is vegan and you're killing the earth, you're not going to listen to them. You're going to write them off because you don't know them. You don't have a relationship with them. There's no reason for you to respect or trust what they're saying because that's the way that human relationships go. But if your friend came up to you and was like, hey, Nicole, you know, I just really got to talk to you about what I've been learning about plant-based diets and the effect that red meat has on our environment. You're going to be more open to listening to that. And you might not change your mind the first time, of course, but you're open to listening. So I'm trying to form relationships where people trust me and are willing to be vulnerable with me and are willing to grow with me. And asking a brand, especially to be vulnerable, is a pretty heavy lift. Mm -hmm. But it's possible, and I'm doing it. And I hope to get people to rally around that idea. You know, let's let's find the brands who are doing a good job and who are starting to take those steps, and let's uplift and encourage and hold them accountable. Um, but you know, let's let's do it in a way that's meaningful and true and um let's do it with compassion i think all of it for me ties back to compassion yeah oh my god i'm obsessed with everything you just said <laughs> so <laughs> yeah i mean even from the start of you know when i posed that question of how you choose which brands to work with it sounds like you've done a lot of reflection to even come up to okay what's my starting criteria right like i email them back if they can't at least tell me that they're in this direction right like everything that you shared i really like that idea of establishing for oneself sort of what's my non-negotiable, I guess, right? And like, to your point, not everything can be a deal breaker. I mean, I guess it can be, but that really, you know, kind of excludes everyone. <laughs> and so this idea of like, what's the most important thing or like, wh what's my starting point? And then to build relationships from there. First of all, I'm sure that makes it a lot easier for you to weed things out, right? You don't have to have conversations with people who don't even like clear that first bar. But I think obviously we're talking about this in the realm of, you know, maybe 
influencer or social media like brand partnerships. But that principle, I think, expands to lots of other things of what's your non-negotiable thing. And then, like you said, kind of the relationships and the humanity and the compassion from there. Yeah. And and with, you know, working with an imperfect brands, even if there was a perfect brand, that's great. And I'm I'm super stoked for them. I'm glad that's happening. But if, if they were perfect already, then I serve no purpose for them because I can't take them to the next level. You know, it's I'm really with people and brands. I want to connect and spend my time and energy on the imperfect souls that have the capability and the the interest to do better and to do more good, because I think that's where the real change happens, you know, Um with politicians, especially like a pol- when I go to lobby, when I meet with politicians who are already so well aligned with everything that I'm doing, and they're already pro public land, they're already pro renewable energy. There's not much to talk about. Like that's great, you're doing a good job. I'm high fives all around, but then it kind of ends there. Like I want to do real work. I want to create change, and if you're going to be committed to creating change, you have to be committed to wading into imperfection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And having nuanced conversations with people who in a lot of ways probably don't agree with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It can feel a lot safer to be surrounded by folks who are aligned, like you said, with all of your beliefs and actions. And I think that that is also important and great and helps you not feel isolated. But, you know, if everyone believes and already does the same things, like that's probably not where change is going to happen. Absolutely. And, and for me with this commitment to nuance, you know, I will say pretty much everyone is kind of irked at me at any given time, um, you know, on whatever issue, like geotagging is an issue that's that's come up a lot for me, which geotags on Instagram are those little location tags. And within the outdoor space, it, they're pretty controversial because they provide direct access to areas. And sometimes they can basically give you like a direct Google Maps route to get to really sensitive places that require context and knowledge of um, the ways to interact with those spaces and, and delicate things in those places that are very unprotected and fragile. And so I like to talk about this issue um, from like the middle ground and seeing both sides. So at any given time, the people who are against geotagging and the people who are for geotagging are both mad at me. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, that's just, you just gotta, again, I gotta just remember it's not about me not take it personally. This is about spreading information and helping people open their minds and uh, see new perspectives, even if it's a challenging perspective. And I love being challenged. I'm here to be challenged. I'm here to uh, deal with some pushback. And I think that that's all part of growth. And so I think when we challenge ourselves and when we are challenged, um, that's when the real good stuff happens. Yeah, I'm going to make sure to link to um, – and there's one article in particular I know that you wrote on Geotag. I don't remember where it was, but that I thought got into this nuance really well and presented, you know, like what folks on sort of both sides think about it and like mentioned the Melanin Basecamp article around it, which I, I really liked. And so I think just – I'm going to put links in the show notes just in case like folks want to see sort of like what this nuance looks like, right? Like I think that's like an interesting um, topic on which to look at it. Awesome, Yeah. Um, so you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation um, that I think you said earlier this year that you'd been dealing with some burnout, right? Like quite significant burnout in your work that led you to make some changes. I'd love for you to talk about 
um, kind of like what caring for yourself looks like while chasing such ambitious ideas and, you know, frustrating setbacks and like the work that you're doing, how, how have you, I guess, like learned to navigate that as far as burnout? And it's fine if the answer is you still don't know, right? Like just, I think that, that there's something really human in that. And I was glad at the beginning that you mentioned, not glad that you felt burned out, obviously, but I think that that's really common, you know, when anyone's doing advocacy or social justice type work. I think everyone is burned out right now. It's, it's a common thread that I hear from everyone that I know that's involved in any sort of advocacy or justice or environmental or political work. Um, the past three years have been rough and we've all been in this constant sense of urgency and crisis. And, um, you know, we're like firefighters with dwindling extinguisher supplies, but the dumpster fires just keep popping up, don't they? And I think that no matter what space you work in, you can probably identify with this this feeling of burnout. And for me, I didn't realize what was going on until I was nothing but a pile of ash. And so when I left my um, job, I really, I did so out of like desperation because of the burnout I had been feeling. And so the pendulum had swung so far onto the side of go, go, go and hustle, hustle, hustle. And these incredibly pressing political needs. And like, if we don't save the world right now, we're all going to die. And then it just shifted to essentially falling apart. Um, I was really depressed. My anxiety levels were through the roof. I isolated myself from my community. Um, which I think is something that may surprise people a lot because I'm so open on social media and, you know, I'm always sharing myself there, but, but that's not, that's not real community. That's not like human touch. Um, and I didn't realize how isolated I had been from that until my therapist was doing some kind of like, she also does like body movement work and she was helping me do some stretches and just like touched me. And I just started crying because I was so desperate for the touch of another being. Um, and, and so I really fell apart. And so it was like these sustained periods, right? So like it was this really long sustained period of the hustle and the go, go, go. And then I'm just now emerging from another six month period where it was just burnout. And for a long time in that burnout, I was still, I was fighting it. I wasn't allowing myself to rest because I felt this, true urgency around the work that I was doing and how important it was. And there was no time for me to just sit back and relax. You know, we have a planet to save here. You know, like we're literally going to go up in flames unless I kept working was the perspective that I had. But I didn't get anything done. I would sit in front of my computer for the entire day and not get anything done. And when I say not get anything done, that's twofold. I wasn't getting any work done. So I wasn't progressing my mission in any way, but I also wasn't allowing myself to rest. So I wasn't healing myself. So I was just in this purgatory. And finally, I realized that I wasn't getting anything done. I wasn't doing myself any favors on either side of the spectrum. So I started to just rest, which I think any entrepreneur or creative person listening to this 
can probably identify with how terrifying it is to rest and to allow yourself to just exist and heal and take care of yourself. And I took a lot of bubble baths and I spent a lot of time painting that mediocre art in the desert and just slowing down and napping a lot. Um, I got a lot of migraines in that season and, and it was just, my body was just trying to heal itself. Um, and so now I think, you know, I had been building up this idea of like making a comeback for the last few months. And I decided that last month when I went to DC and went to lobby, um, for this event called climb the hill, it would be my, my like comeback moment because I had skipped over the summer. I had skipped the big trade show that we went to. I had skipped a lot of big networking um, and gathering opportunities. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to DC. I'm going to lobby. I'm going to be with my people and my community, my colleagues. I'm going to get that energy back and we're going to dive back into it. And if you've ever been to DC or spent time on the Hill, you know that that is certainly an extreme. And so I, I threw myself into this extreme for a week and then I came home and I got so sick. And again, was it, it was like two weeks of me not doing anything. And so it was like, I was like, okay, well, we, we took this burnout cycle from like a one year, six month cycle to a one week cycle. So we're at least like on a weekly basis now. And so now I'm at the point where I'm trying to make this cycle of the hustle and the heavy, hard stuff and like the doom and gloom that we sometimes deal with in these spaces and balance it on a daily basis, on an hourly basis with care and rest and, um, you know, all the things you think of when you think of self-care, like mm -hmm. from bubble baths to booking myself a doctor's appointment, you know, those are all like, you have to take care of yourself. And I think in anyone who works in advocacy or community service or activism, we have to prioritize taking care of ourselves. Because as I mentioned earlier, if you are not taking care of yourself, you are not going to be able to show up at your fullest, strongest potential. If you're just dragging yourself along for weeks and months and years, you're depleting yourself of the fire and the power that's inside of you. It's so much better for you to take a week off and recharge yourself and be able to come back swinging 500% into the fight than to just be kind of like starving and weak and showing up and trying to get something done. Like when we prioritize that balance in our lives, it only serves to strengthen what we're capable of achieving. Yeah. And I feel like that's like the quintessential example of something that people understand logically, right? Like, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with you. And yet, oftentimes our behavior does not mimic, right? Like what we know to be true, we think maybe we're the exception or, you know, we can push through it or we're so important that we have to, right? And it's like, it comes for everyone, right? And this idea of, you know, what if it, the question sort of that I think I hear you posing like underneath what you're saying is like, what if the pendulum swings didn't have to be so dramatic, right? What if it wasn't like years of hustle and then like six months of pile of ash, right? Like, is there a way to sort of bake in this kind of care and rest and boundaries and stuff into the work itself to make the, like, it's funny to like care about sustainability, but like, is your work process sustainable? 
Exactly. That is so exactly it. You have to make your own life sustainable. And for some practical tips, what I've been working on is I have this app on my phone called Forest. And um, it's a it's a timer app that you set an amount of time um, from, you know, 15 minutes to like two hours or however long you want to do it. And you you commit yourself to not doing anything else on your phone. It kind of helps you um, focus. So like if you leave the app, it kills the tree. The, the whole point is that if you complete your 45-minute window uninterrupted, the app actually builds a tree. Like it, it plants a tree in real life. Um, and if you try to leave the app, this little sad tree pops up and it's like, do you oh. want to kill me? <laughs> so, so I've been using this app to... Uh, block my time out, I think as creatives and as people who work non-conventional jobs, we have a lot of different things and projects that we're juggling at any given time. So I like to break them down now into one hour blocks. So I wake up, I start my morning, um, my therapist, which plug here, it, I can't express enough how much I think every human on the planet needs a therapist and could benefit from a therapist. But my therapist has me start each day um, with my plants. So I start each day by just sitting with my plants and kind of touching them and, you know, being that creepy woman who's speaking to her plants in a soft voice. And then I spend an hour diving into my emails or, you know, kind of whatever administrative task I need to do for the day. And then I set a timer for 30 minutes or an hour to go outside and weed or to catch up on finishing my last painting or to read a book and then I come back from that and I spend another hour working and, you know, creating those time blocks in your day and in inserting that self-care into your day. And it might not be a full hour. Sometimes it's a 15 minute walk around the block with my dog. But to keep that balance constantly in your day, I think is the key to that sustainability. And yes, sometimes we're going to have days where the whole day we just got to go, 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 go and hustle. And I hope that when we have those days, we start blocking in a day where we don't do anything. Mm-hmm. You had a full hustle day. You now need a balancing day to just roll around in the dirt in the desert or read a book or lay in your bed and watch Netflix all day. Whatever it is that you need to do, we have to remember that we are like our iPhones and sometimes we need to be put down and plugged into a wall to recharge. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think that's a really good place to start to wrap up. And the way that we end these episodes are with some completely random rapid fire questions. If you're down to answer a handful of random questions. Let's do it. What's something that you've been doing lately purely for fun and joy? I have been getting pedicures with a good friend of mine. What's something that really makes you feel at home? Plants. What's something that you do as regular maintenance in your most important relationships that you feel helps to keep them strong and healthy? My partner and I don't sleep with phones in our bed. And so when we go to sleep and when we wake up, it's our special time together. Mm, I love that. The next question is about boundaries. I know we talked about this a little bit in the realm of social media, but maybe outside of that, what's a boundary of yours that's important to you and what does it look like in your real life to enforce it? I have a group text with two of my fantastic girlfriends and we get into a lot of heavy topics in there and sometimes we really um, 
need each other to show up and we have challenging conversations. And we recently started being very communicative around when one of us isn't able to participate or show up. And there's an understanding that we don't take it personally when someone says, hey guys, I'm in another country right now in a different time zone. I'm checking out of this conversation right now. Or, hey guys, I'm really tired. I need some rest. Carry on this conversation without me. I'll check in on it later. Um, I think that's having those honest communications with your friends is a huge one. I think that alone could be like its whole own podcast episode, right? Of like, what are we emotionally equipped for at any given moment? And we can't be available all of the time. And like that, yes, that resonates with me a lot. What's the last thing that you felt really excited about? I saw Dr. Jane Goodall and Paul Hawkins speak last night in Park City. And Jane Goodall is one of my childhood idols. And seeing her speak um, and hearing some of her personal anecdotes made me realize how much who I am today was shaped by her. And I just cried the whole time. And Mm. I'm still fired up about it. Mm. I love that. The next question is about books. Which two or three books, any kind of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll is my favorite book of all time. I collect them. Um, I collect old copies of them and I love it. And I reread it all the time. Um, Biggest impact on me. I have a stack of books right now about activism and advocacy that I'm reading that are having a huge impact on me. Um, But in full transparency, reading is really hard for me. I used to read a book a day when I was a kid. And after this new life of screens and being on all the time and writing all the time and creating marketing pieces all the time. I didn't read a book for about the last eight years. So I'm diving back into books. Yeah, no, that's a super honest answer. I also love Alice in Wonderland. So you are not alone there. (laughs) Last question. If you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I would like to leave them with this idea that we are taking so much from the world around us and from our planet and from the environment, from the land, the air, the water, and that we have an inherent responsibility and a duty to give back to these places and to feel a sense of collective global ownership over our beautiful planet. So however that looks like to you to give back, just do it and do it not out of obligation, but do it out of love. Mm. Yeah. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite um, way to connect with new people? I'm a huge fan of Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Katie Bouet. That's K-A-T-I-E-B-O-U-E. Or you can find me at katiebouet.com, katiebouet at Gmail. Type in my name, find me. I'd love to connect with you. I'd love to share the stoke and hear what you guys are fired up on and how I can support the work that the incredible people out there are doing to make our planet a healthier, happier, more sustainable place. Yes, indeed. Katie, thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. 
And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Nicole. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready. Sure am. First question, my favorite question, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Um, I was prepared for this question. So I am totally obsessed with audio drama podcasts. Um, so they're podcasts that are like usually science fiction-y, um, but they're like a long story, sort of like you would watch a TV show, but a podcast. Um, some of my favorites are Ars Paradoxica, The Bright Sessions, and Limetown. I've listened to all of them like three or four times all the way through, and I like won't listen to one for a week or two, and then I'm like, yeah, I need a good story again, <laughs> so then I'll just start over. Interesting. So this might be a silly question, but since that's a genre of podcast I have not consumed, what do you feel like the difference is between that and like an audiobook? Um... Not a ton, except that, well, so if you ever listen to audiobooks from Fullcast Audio, it's similar where, like, they have different actors do different voices and stuff. So this ends up being a little more like old-time radio. Like, they have the sound effects, and mm. they have different actors doing different voices, and it, but the stories are a lot better than in old-school, old-time radio. So I've listened to audiobooks that was just one person reading, which was fine and lovely. And I've listened to audiobooks where they pay a bunch of actors, and it's fantastic. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, you've caught my attention. I will check it out. Yep, that sounds good. Um, what's a small, regular thing that you have been doing to take care of yourself lately? Um, making breakfast in the morning. Uh, if especially at my apartment. If I wait and try to eat breakfast at work, usually like people have come up to me and then it'll be 10 a.m. before I eat anything. And it just throws my whole day off if I don't have some food in the morning. Yeah, I can completely relate to the necessity of if I don't have breakfast right away, it's not going to happen and then I don't feel good. What's your breakfast of choice lately? Chop up a bunch of vegetables the night before and then like just saute them in oil and salt and pepper and like some harissa spice. And when they're good and soft or crispy or whatever, then just fry an egg with it. Oh, all right. I like it. What's something mm -hmm. intentional that you're doing in your financial life right now? Uh, thinking through the ways that I would afford potential large purchases that are coming up in the next like year to five years. Like my car is fine right now, but probably won't be fine in three to five years. And I'd like to save up for it first. Um, but that requires a lot of like jiggering of my budget. So yeah, yeah, totally figuring out like what like how it fits in and what a long-term thing looks like. Yeah, that's a super honest answer. Mm -hmm. What's one thing that you'd love to do before the end of the year? Um, well, I'm going on a retreat to Texas in October. So, I mean, that's already paid for. I mean, barring any health things or acts of gods, like I'm going. Um, 
Yeah, that and just like spend a whole afternoon reading a book uninterrupted. Mm, my favorite activity. Like, those two things would make my year. Oh my God, yeah. it's the best. I I did that once on this trip to the UK um, and I read and I mean it was a short book it was like 140 pages or something but I read the whole book in an afternoon at the beach and I'm like yeah this is my best life that's the best (laughs) last question what's one topic that you would love to hear more honest conversation about what do you wish people were talking about Uh, I wish that people talked about the real reasons why they do things as opposed to the socially accepted reasons why. Um, Mm. I quit a job, oh gosh, like five years ago now and had like eight different answers for why, depending on who I was talking to and how much I trusted them. Um, And interestingly, the like three people that I would have trusted with the real raw, honest answer. Uh, Two of them never directly asked me. And so I never told them. Um, Yeah. Like my socially accepted answer was like work or sorry, it was money because it was not a job that paid a lot. But like the real reason was that I didn't like the way the company was run and couldn't stand the boss, but I wasn't about to say that to all of the other employees. Yeah, sure. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Like people's like motivations, like why they actually do something versus like, if they think that that's something that they can share or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's funny. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you have made a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show for which I am super grateful. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. So I found the show um, maybe like two or three years ago. Um, I didn't support it right away because I was like, oh, I'll listen to all the episodes. And then when I've run out of episodes, I'll pay for the extra content. And I actually didn't get to the point where I ran out of episodes before you started uh, asking for followers so that you could pay your guests. And I uh, used to work in the entertainment industry. So I don't know why this surprised me, but I did not realize that not paying guests was the norm in the podcast world. And oh my I was gosh, so yes. mad. <laughs> yeah. I was so mad because I hated when I was an artist and people are like, can't you do it for half price or can't you do it for like free? And I'm just like, no, 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 no. And so um, since I no longer work in the entertainment industry, I make enough money now. And was like, oh, well, if this means that she gets to pay her guests, then I will put my money where my mouth is. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it it is not the norm. I actually don't know anyone else who does it who pays. I mean, hopefully that changes, right? I would love for it to change and for folks to get paid for their time. Um, obviously, that's why we're doing what we're doing here. And I appreciate that you make that possible. So thanks for that. <laughs> Do you want to share where you live and like a social media link so people can say hi? Uh, I live in sunny Sacramento, California, which I adore. It's a great place to come visit if you like medium-sized cities. Um, I actually don't do social media with people I don't know in real life, so I'm not going to share. Awesome answer. Um, Can I ask you a follow-up question about that? Sure. Has that always been the case, or is this a new boundary? 
It's mostly been the case. Um, a lot of, well, Facebook for me became business-based very early on. And so I didn't add a lot of random people, but I also knew a lot of people in real life. And so uh, when I got out of the industry where I needed to use it professionally, I just realized I didn't want to know I didn't want to have a two-way conversation with a bunch of people I don't know so I never got into Twitter um I didn't enjoy it at all so Instagram I follow some people that I don't know in real life but I don't necessarily want them to follow me back interesting I love it I, I mean obviously I'm super interested in kind of social media and connection habits and stuff so I appreciate the little peek into why you do what you do and to everyone listening if you love the podcast <laughs> if you want to help keep it going if you want lots of bonus content other fun opportunities and extras just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of one dollar or more per episode that support is what allows the show to continue allows me to pay guests as we talked about and I can't wait to get to know you better once you've joined our community so until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 